You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Formerly Bulletproof Radio. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. I recently read an article in Wired Magazine, and it was interesting because it was called The Shamanification of the Tech CEO. And it it was... uh, an article about how deprivation is become in vogue with CEOs. And since I'm a fan of Wired Magazine, Kevin Kelly, one of the, the founders, has been on The Human Upgrade before, a real interesting guy. And one of these days, I'll get Jane Metcalf, the other one on, as a former computer hacker, a cyberpunk guy from the, the 90s. It, it, it's always been one of my favorite and most interesting magazines. So seeing this article was really cool. And it was by a cultural anthropologist who studies uh, this kind of stuff. And I said, hey, what would happen if we had him on the show? So we're going to talk about uh, CEO-ship. We're going to talk about shamanification, what that means, what self-denial looks like, and uh, go through some learning there because this apparently is the week of that kind of discussion. Later on, we're going to have an episode with a Peruvian shaman who does ayahuasca and uh, see what we can learn here. Um, This is a guy who has a PhD uh, in uh, evolutionary biology from Harvard, which is a very interesting subject. If you're a longtime listener, you know we've had several evolutionary biologists on, and those conversations are always cool. So with no uh, further ado, I'd like to introduce you to Manveer Singh. Manveer, welcome to the show. Yeah, thank you for having me. I'm excited to chat. You're an anthropologist at the Institute for Advanced Study in... Toulouse. But you're in Indonesia, and you're studying some ancient, uh, some ancient. You're not in Indonesia as we talk, but you've traveled to Indonesia, and you write in the article in Wired about you know, how you've you've seen this across a, a huge data set, uh, including the people you hang with, saying I have to deprive myself of this or of that. And overall, I I would say the article is a little bit critical, saying like, why do they feel like they have to do this? Is that a good? Is that a good? take on it? I mean, did I read the article in a way that's sort of like, like, like there's a little bit of, of self-deception involved in doing this? Wait, critical of whom? Of the shamans? Just, just a, a, no, a, of, of either shamans or tech CEOs, um, because like they're sort of self-deceiving themselves into believing that the stuff they're doing works. Okay. Yeah. Um, I guess one way of thinking about it would be a criticality. More generally, it's about trying to just understand something that seems puzzling and interesting and providing a cross-cultural perspective on it. Um, I guess whether you think it is critical depends on how you feel about um, these double discourses where, you know, there's a certain kind of justification and another reason underlying it. But that is a pretty pervasive kind of way of interacting. Um, well, you know it, what I mean? It, I think I, I think I understand what you're saying there, and it, it's funny because I, I read it. You're saying, well, look at Elizabeth Holmes, right? <laughs> she, she, she lives on kale juice, which, by the way, that's a sign of a problem because kale's gross. Uh, but anyway, uh, you know, you, you like, okay, there's this, and then there's Jack Dorsey, uh, who's talked a lot about intermittent fasting, and I know he's, he's tweeted with me publicly about using bulletproof coffee in a, in a fasting process, and you've been talking about biohacking and transhumanism in here and saying, you know, 
American CEOs are, are acting like shamans did, and you argue that shamanism is an emergent behavior that all cultures have to explain some stuff. Talk to me about that. I've never heard anyone say, you know, um, it, it comes from basically biological quirks in humans that, that causes shamanism to arrive. Explain how that is and then why you think tech CEOs are actually becoming shamanic in their things. Everyone says your cardiovascular conditioning is really important, but they never tell you why. It's not because cardiovascular conditioning makes you look good. It's because it's behind the process that gives you energy and everyone wants to have enough energy. There's a specific device that allows you to specifically train your cardiovascular system so your body gains control of the way your blood vessels work consciously. And it's based on biohacking and biofeedback. It's called the Zona Plus. What it does is use something called a static contraction of your muscles without you having to move anything. It's a unique set of exercises for you that in just a couple minutes a day trains your entire cardiovascular system so you have better blood pressure and you can be more efficient at making energy. Here's the deal for you. How about saving $100 on a device that could really change your cardiovascular system without making you sweat at all? Go to Zona.com, use code Dave, and they'll give you $100 off your purchase. That's Z-O-N-A.com, use code Dave for $100 off. I've never heard anyone say, you know, um, it, it comes from basically biological quirks in humans that, that causes shamanism to arrive. Explain how that is and then why you think tech CEOs are actually becoming shamanic in their things. Yeah. So if we look at societies around the world, there is this very puzzling recurrence of what seems to be a pretty peculiar package of practices and beliefs where you have specialists or practitioners who enter these altered states or states that are foreign from normal human functioning in those states uh, engage with some unseen reality and provide services from weather control to healing to divination and so on. And so you have this practice that that pops up quite reliably in, in quite diverse spots. And it's pretty reliably associated or tied to these other practices, dramatic initiations, forms of deprivation, and so on. So I'm starting with this observation and just asking, yeah, why, why, why does this happen? What is it about like human psychology, about how humans socially interact, about um, the way culture evolves that leads us to reliably produce this pretty puzzling package of practices and beliefs? So, so that's just the first point, and, and we can discuss that, whether mm -hmm. or not shamanism is as widespread and recurrent as, as I'm saying it is. I, I, I believe that that we, we can just take that as a given. I, I've studied a lot of shamanic stuff. Here's one of my favorite resources, volume one and volume two of shamanism. You probably have these books somewhere in your studies as well. wouldn't surprise me. And I've read dozens of other books, and I've traveled the world and done shamanic practices in different cultures as part of the weird stuff that I do. Um, so, all right, yes, it's widespread okay, pretty yes. much anywhere you look, whether they call it shamanic or they call it some other flavor, but it is clearly inspired from the bone people or something similar. Okay, yeah, shamanism is everywhere. We, uh, we'll just say that that's real. Okay, keep going. Okay, so then the next question is why? And now there have been put forward many explanations. Um, a popular one, at least among cognitive and evolutionary researchers, is this one put forward by Michael Winkleman, who says that 
trans states are these technologies for producing insight. Um, you know, there's yes. that famous figure of like a brain on psilocybin and a brain not on psilocybin or the mm-hmm. networks and you use, you know, the psilocybin piece has all of these connections among networks that normally aren't interacting. And so he's arguing from a place like that, that t- trans is this technology for getting, um, for producing insight, for providing social services. Now, I think there can be something compelling in this. I think the weakness of that is that the states that shamans engage in and that they enter are tremendously psychologically diverse. You know, there isn't some coherent, singular cross-cultural trans state. Um, And you can just look at the technologies that they use for entering these, which range from sensory deprivation to various kinds of hallucinogens to various kinds of uh, other psychotropic substances to, to dancing to rhythmic drumming to meditative solitude and you know mm-hmm. there, are, there are nice research reviews that go through all kinds of altered states and, and run through their psychological effects and they're incredibly diverse um, and so yeah I think that is a weakness of it what I find more compelling and what I think a lot of research would um, support, and we can dig into this, is this idea that what shamans are really doing is they are providing individuals with um, a service, and particularly a service of, of controlling uncertainty. So there are all kinds of uncertain forces in the world. Illness, the weather, you know, whether my business does well, um, we want, there's a lot of information that we otherwise don't have access to. And people not only want control over these things, but they believe that there are like patterns, there are forces that that dictate how these resolve: gods, witches, fate, spirits, um, whatever. The the list goes on. Government conspiracies and so on. They believe often that there are some kind of agentic forces that oversee how uncertainty resolves. And so, what these shamans are doing is that they are claiming to engage with these invisible forces. Um, and they are convincing individuals and themselves that they are different from normal humans, that they have fundamentally transformed in some way that allows them to, to have this insight. So that that's an explanation of shamanism that I find compelling. I would say that this doesn't deny that shamans are providing benefits or they are providing services. Um, I was actually just speaking a couple of days ago to an anthropologist, Polly Wiesner. She's at ASU. She's worked with Kalahari, Uh, what many people would call Bushmen for for decades. And she was describing this experience where she had this incredibly anxiety-inducing experience in the United States related to to medical care, to the medical care of someone she loved. And she flew to the Kalahari. She stayed with the Bushmen, as as she often calls them, or the group in particular, the Jutwansi. I just, you know, the, the click is kind of tricky Um, (laughs) in the same way that you feel apprehensive about French words. Um, And yeah, so she, she goes to bed and she wakes up and she's screaming. She's having this terrible nightmare. And she says that the Bushmen come together and they start a trance dance immediately. The women are clapping, particular Mm -hmm. men are are entering trance and they do this all night. Um, They are the way that they describe it. There is an energy that boils inside of you and then they they heal you through touch. Mm -hmm. And she talks about this feeling of 
um, of being cared for, of being looked out for. These individuals are, as they understand it, engaging near death. You know, they're really sacrificing themselves. Everyone has shown up and everyone is here to heal Polly. Um, and that kind of assurance is both very healing and for her was really alleviated some of that anxiety. Anyway, that's a very long anecdote to say that, well, I think that a compelling explanation for shamanism is that it emerges to assure people that they can control uncertainty. That isn't to deny other kinds of benefits that shamanic practices uh, might provide. It It's interesting because... I've looked at the the use of language in the, the in your your piece for Wired, and it it, it definitely sounds sort of like yeah, all of the stuff the shams are doing it's it's kind of BS, right? But you know, the, clearly it emerges probably because we're crazy, and you know, like here's a, a line from it. You know, the shamanification of American CEOs is about more than just deprivation. It's about meditation, psychedelic drugs, silent retreats, playa names, infrared heat lamps, DIY surgeon, and every other ancient or post-human widget that CEOs and founders subject themselves to on the path to becoming saints with iPhones. Not exactly a, a ringing endorsement of it. And I, I was intrigued because like the, the through line here is sort of like, this stuff doesn't make any sense. And the reason that it stuck out to me is I'm a computer science guy. I was raised an atheist. If you would have told me 20 years ago that I would have gone to Mount Kailash to, to walk around Mount Kailash uh, and that I would be learning shamanism uh, from various people uh, and I am not a shaman. I just know some shamanic practices. But like I, I would have just said, you're insane. What I started doing that was measuring what worked to improve my performance quantitatively, right? And I realized that altered states are the same as high performance states because average states are average performance states. So if you want to go into an intuitive state, you want to go into a connected state, you can go into an ecstatic state. Sure, there's technologies. I, I have neuroscience tech and I can run electrical currents and do blinky lights. Or we could go do Tibetan bowls and create binaural beats or all the shamanic drumming, all the stuff you just talked about, right? But I, I realized I didn't know how to do my job as a CEO of a company that I grew from nothing to more than a hundred million in revenue. Um, I didn't know how to do that without accessing those altered states. And I just wanted the tech to get me there the fastest, right? It wasn't about like feeling special. It wasn't about like telling everyone I'm special. It was about how do I get all this shit done? Because I, there's so much moving so quickly that it wasn't like that if you were an IBM CEO in 1950, like, well, I'll have my secretary's secretary bring me the file cabinet, in fact, right behind me on this side is an 1885 filing cabinet. It's behind this white thing. You can't see it. But I have it there to remind me of how much, like your iPhone has a million of those in it, right? So like the speed, I couldn't do my job until I said, all right, I'm going to be a rational computer science guy. And yeah, I'm going to go to Burning Man. <laughs> like, so I read this. I'm like, man, I would have failed had I not gone down these weird things that don't make any sense to me, except that they work and that I can measure the changes in the amplitude of my brain waves, And that when I can get there, how do you bring those together? Is shamanic practice sort of like saying, well, all cultures say the sky is blue just because it's there, 
versus they convince themselves the sky is blue, but it's not really there. Like, like how do you do this as a researcher? I'm, I'm really curious about it. Um, wait, how do I do what? Well, how, how do you, you're sort of saying, well, you know, clearly this, this weird shamanic thing, like they're convincing themselves of this thing, but we don't think that we're convincing ourselves the sky is blue, right? So we all agree on that. But if, if all societies have shamanic practice and shamanism is a non-average state, it would follow that, okay, this stuff is present everywhere. It's just not common everywhere because it's above average or below average. It's just not average. And, and I, the reason I'm going here is Joe DeSena, uh, or sorry, not Joe DeSena, Joe Dispenza, both of those Joes have been on the show. Um, <laughs> Joe Dispenza went through and studied the yogic cities, which you may be familiar with, and said, that's weird. If we look for evidence of these amongst meditators, we find it. If we look for evidence of these amongst common people who don't meditate, there is no evidence. So I, I'm looking here for a truth. And you know, with hundreds of thousands of people listening, sort of saying, all right, is it that these shamanic realms exist everywhere and some of us are trained to see them, some of them aren't? Or is it that they don't exist and some of us are just batshit crazy and we use them for marketing? Yeah, okay, so you bring up a number of points there, which we can dig into. Is it that these shamanic realms exist everywhere and some of us are trained to see them, some of them aren't? Or is it that they don't exist and some of us are just batshit crazy and we use them for marketing? Yeah, okay, so you bring up a number of points there, which we can dig into. So the first is you seem to be presenting a, we can formalize it as a hypothesis, that altered states are technologies for producing some kind of insight or or allowing individuals to do things they otherwise wouldn't be able to do. And so then the the question then becomes, what predictions does that make about like what shamans and shamanism should look like around the world? You know, um, so like one simple prediction would be, or one simple question is, what does that predict about the jurisdiction of shamans? Like what shamans Mm. should do? And so what prediction do you think derives from that? That what shamans should do? Yeah. Mm, an interesting question. Um, and also makes the prediction that the form of the technology for inducing the altered state should correspond with the particular service that they provide. Or that there should be some correspondence where you're leveraging the service to oh. maximally take advantage of the technology of inducing that old that, state. That actually we know some stuff about because of, of my neuroscience uh, company there. Depending on which of the altered states a shaman is going to, and, and the way the shamans that I'm familiar with would explain this for the most part, and I'm translating between different practices that I'm aware of, there's the underworld, uh, which is a place where they go. And it's a place where most people can go, but probably shouldn't unless they have some guidance because according to the shamans, I believe, there's probably some danger there uh, if you don't know what you're doing. Anyway, they go there um, and there's things you can do that are healing related. There's things you can do that are tapping into collective consciousness. Uh, there's things you can do that are related to communication. So when we're looking at someone's brainwaves, and I have the fortune of having seen some brainwaves of people with 
yogic cities and things like that. And when you can measure the brainwaves, um, what you'll find is um, that if they're going into, say, um, the collective consciousness zone, it's a different brain pattern than someone who's going into an astral travel or a healing practice uh, or you know a universal heart-opening kind of connected thing. So bottom line is, it's sort of like, if you were to hire a builder, a, a general contractor for your house, you'd say, well, yeah, that's the guy putting in the bricks and he looks like this. And the guy putting in the electricity looks like that, right? So you'd sort of choose the right tool for the job. And keep in mind, I am not a shaman. I've just worked with a bunch of shamans and I've looked at some brainwaves, right? So I'm, I'm doing my best here. So um, sort of saying there are people who do energetic architecture, right? To create stuff or to, to know stuff. It, it seems like there's enough of this. Cause if you ask Sergey, uh, Sergey and Larry, you were able to ask Steve jobs. You were able to ask the founders of Hewlett Packard. Like, like there's a rich history, Watson and Crick. You know, I woke up from a dream. I was in an altered state and so many people listening have had these profound experiences where something important happened. And I can tell you there you know, having yak butter tea on the side of Mount Kailash was the inspiration for me to start Bulletproof Coffee. Like, like it, it actually happened that way. I, it wasn't like a myth that I made up afterwards. It, it happened and I wasn't asking for it to happen. I wasn't expecting it to happen. Yeah. Right. It was, so I'm trying to figure this out going, all right, is it that the demands on CEOs are so strong that they're, they're going to these tool sets that were really something that, that you would laugh at a person for doing because there's no choice or are they doing it because it makes them look cool so they can be like cult leaders? Well, so like green juicing. Um, Dude, I hate that stuff, but yeah, okay. Like, <laughs> what do you think is the story behind green juicing? Well, I have an I have anecdote for that. Um, I fell for that in about 2000, 2002, 2003. Um, not because I was a CEO, I was, you know, a tech guy. Yeah. I was getting my MBA or I had just gotten my MBA at Wharton. So, you know, I was uh, certainly on the career track, but I felt like shit and I had weighed up to 300 pounds and my brain was turning off and I thought, Oh, this is going to work. So I read some stuff and, Oh, this vegan thing's a great idea. Uh, and I went for it and I was drinking my green juice and blending kale and doing all that crap. And I lost some weight and I had some altered states, actually a lot of altered states that came from it, states of deprivation, actually, to your point in the article. Um, I became ungrounded, which happens a lot. Uh, it's a thyroid function and a hormone crashing <laughs> and, uh, in, and an interruption of minerals in the body. Uh, and then I... Um, uh, and then I started cracking teeth and I got autoimmune problems, inflammation, and I realized it was stupid and I had a commitment to myself to only do what worked. Before that, though, I also worked out an hour and a half a day, six days a week on a low-fat, low-calorie diet trying to lose weight. That didn't work. And it was the frustration with doing stuff that someone told me would work and finding it didn't work. So I said, I'm just going to measure it, right? And what I found on the vegan does, I lose weight and you felt good for a little while. Then I, I got screwed up. What I find is that when people long-term do lots of, especially the kale and spinach green juices, um, ex they tend to become worse and worse mentally, but they become, uh, what's the word for it? More, more flighty, more ungrounded, less, less able to regulate their emotions. And sometimes I can feel like a spiritual state that's sought after sort of like, Oh, I, now I'm really feeling my emotions. I'm like, yeah. Or your body's panicking because it had too much deprivation. <laughs> yeah. Well, I mean, so I would definitely acknowledge that different kinds of altered states can be leveraged to produce 
different psychological states that, you know, that's a great has, statement. I like that. <laughs> um, nevertheless, if we look, if we take green juicing as an example, or we take the alphabet diet as an example, yep. or we take frugitarianism as, as an example, you have both a diet that is arguably, I mean, green juicing, so much of the, the discussion of green juicing has been that it is impossible to live off of a diet that is so impoverished of fat and protein. Oh, um, it'll, it'll trash your biology over time, but it's probably good to do it for a month. Yes, but I mean, if she's claiming to do it for, for many years and not only claiming to do it, but like finding opportunities to, to talk about it. Or, so I think there's both, there's both like the kinds of diets that are borderline unrealistic, but then also the opportunity to constantly leverage that as a way of building a persona or a platform. So I'll give you an example. I did not use this person's name because I thought it would be mean spirited. But I interviewed one individual who has been very vocal about dopamine fasting. Um, they have talked to major news outlets about it. They have written public posts. I, I'm, um, I'm an investor in that guy's company. I know you're talking about. <laughs> well, well, okay. Yeah, I don't want to. But anyway, so, you know, he was saying that he finds it a, a real travesty, this idea that certain individuals would use claims of deprivation to build a public persona. And nevertheless, yeah. you know, he has written about it publicly. I went to his LinkedIn page. He mentions it three times on his LinkedIn page. Um, during our conversation, he found opportunities to talk about the particular media outlet in which it appeared. Um, so, you know, from one perspective, I don't want to call him a hypocrite. He's actually incredibly thoughtful. But one perspective would say, this individual is both arguing for the benefits of this, finding it really reprehensible, this notion that certain individuals would leverage, leverage it, and then seems to be potentially <laughs> leveraging it for essential benefits. Was, you know, but again, he was like very friendly on the, on the call and very eager to share his thoughts. So I didn't, this is why I didn't include it in the piece. I didn't want to be mean. Um, so yeah, and we can step back and think more generally about what are the intuitions that humans or the inferences that humanity makes more generally about deprivation. And so one context in which it emerges is shamanism, but it also emerges in others. So for instance, in Mentawe, where I do field work, yeah, shamans engage in deprivation. Also, if I want to uh, engage in black magic, then you know I have two avenues. Has the person hurt me? If they've hurt me, then it's it's believed that, okay, the spirits will be more down. Um, they think it's more justified to, to help me steal this person's soul and do what I want to it. If this person has not hurt me, then it's expected that um, I should engage in some kind of deprivation. I should cover my body in turmeric. I should not eat for anywhere from six to two days, six hours to two days, depending on who you ask. I should not have sex. And the way that this is narrativized is that it's understood that through, through my deprivation, I force the spirits to, to assist me. There is, again, this notion of it cultivating some kind of power, some kind of ability to bend the world to my way. Another, another example in a domain that is very different from shamanism is there's this incredible paper about the Barama River Caribs um, and about law and justice about, um, among these Barama River Caribs. I think it was in Guyana. And so they... Uh, the ethnographer describes this belief in something called a kanaima, which is essentially some kind of like ghoul ghost ninja. And it's believed that any individual who has been attacked can uh, invest in becoming a kanaima. And 
really important to becoming a kanaima is incredible deprivation. You have to live off of fungi. You have to drink rainwater. Um, you can only eat one bird. And it's believed that through this kind of intense deprivation, you are uh, cultivating the ability to become invisible, to essentially do things that normal humans cannot. Um, and this is this very reliable intuition. This is the way it becomes narrativized or described. Less, uh, okay, yeah, I mean, if we look across cultures and we ask people, what does deprivation do? The answer isn't as much, oh, it changes my psychology in a way that gives me insight. It's, it cultivates special abilities. It cultivates power. It cultivates the ability to call spirits, to, um, you know, become invisible, to force ancestors to, to do my bidding. And so I am really just following the intuition that is being articulated, you know, I, I, among other things, in providing this kind of an account. Have you ever tried it? You ever tried stealing someone's soul or becoming invisible? Yo, I really wanted to try just to get an ethnographic insight into it. Someone had stolen or someone had stolen a number of our chickens. Um, and I brought it up with, with a friend of mine. I was like, oh, should we do, it's called Panakbuk. Should we do some Panakbuk? Um, it's quite involved. You have to, you have to get like all kinds of animal parts that are otherwise very difficult to get. You have to get the teeth of serpents. You have to get the stinger of a scorpion. You have to get a shark tooth, ideally. You get all of the most dangerous objects and then you put them in a container and then you call the soul into that container. Um, but I mean, did you I do it? In, no, I did not because I mean, first of all, it's like a pretty dark act to engage in. People are quite <laughs> apprehensive about it engaging is. in it. Um, yeah, I mean, I I was more just interested in the ethnographic reality of it. But my my uh, good friend had admitted to doing it. Um, he bought. Did it. it work? I actually don't recall if he said it worked or not. Um. Yeah, but to come back to this this point earlier, so you had put forward this like trance as a technology hypothesis, and then that makes predictions about like what shamans should do, um, and might predict that they should often be leaders, or they should be like looked to for particular kinds of information. They should be seen to solve particular kinds of problems, um, and it becomes an empirical question. Uh, in my own kind of comparative studies, I have used existing data sets that look at what shamans do. And the thing that they most reliably do is they help people overcome uncertainty. They call rain when you cannot get rain. They tell you, um, they tell you like, uh, they, they help you solve illnesses that have otherwise, or treat illnesses that have otherwise been very difficult to treat. They promote harvest. They, they uh, call spirits to help you in business. Uh, and it's, it's in these particular domains where people also very frequently use magic, um, where they use rituals, they use incantations, they use various kinds of occult gizmos. Mm. Um, but, you know, again, I'm an empiricist. Like, I, in this paper, I, I published the paper, there were a number of commentaries that put forward different hypotheses, and, and I would be very eager for people to formalize those and make predictions and, and test the domains in which, it, in which they occur. It's and really in fact, interesting. Or just because... Mm -hmm. You know, after I after I published this piece, in the piece there is a line that says something like, "Reviews of fasting and cognitive effects have found uh, that most or most studies have found little have found no change or deficits." And then a number of people got in touch with me and they said, "Hey, you you missed a really important literature that has developed since 2019." Uh, and the literature that I had looked at is about one-time fasting events 
and the psychological effects for individuals who do not engage in, in very much fasting. Since 2019, there, there is a growing literature that looks at the long-term psychological effects of a uh, fasting regime, you know, six mm-hmm. months of intermittent fasting. And those actually do show cognitive benefits. Um, they, they do. It's, it's pretty profound. Um, I, I find, because I get to look at amplitude of brain waves of people who are uh, regular fasters or when I can mimic fasting by just increasing ketones in people, uh, when you're doing altered states work, which is what people are doing when they're at my neuroscience thing, um, they can do about 2.5 times more trance type of work when they have ketones, which you get from intermittent fasting or from MCT oil. If I don't give them the MCT oil, they just don't have the mental resilience to do the deep work that they're doing there. And a lot of the work is supported by transpersonal psychology. Like there's 30 years of research on the, the actual power of forgiveness and things like that. But it's just, it's, it's very hard and, and scary work sometimes to do that. So you just want to have a fully powered brain to do it. And dopamine, don't dopamine, but, um, insulin resistance makes for a lower powered brain. So if the brain can work better biologically, then it would follow that you could think better and you could also access any of these altered states better. And that's, that's the world that I live in is that th- those are possible. Um, I, can I, I ask you a quick question? Just yeah. to, so a number of CEO founders that I spoke to who are quoted in the piece talk about this need to cultivate a persona of being able to do something, of, of being special, of having power, of being charismatic. Um, and, you know, they actually use the word special in particular, or one of hmm. them did. Um, because uh, what they had said was you have to appeal to investors, you have to appeal to potential clients, you have to appeal, appeal to talent. Now, would you agree with this, this notion that as a CEO founder, there is a pressure to appear uh, like you can, like you can do things that that regular people cannot. What if there was a way to feel younger for longer? Well, there is. Your body needs something called the NAD plus molecule to help you age well. When you're young, your body makes a lot of NAD plus, and that helps you make energy. It helps you keep your DNA healthy, absorb nutrients well, and it protects your cells from stress. But once you hit about 30, your NAD plus levels start to drop. The good news is that longevity scientists have found some things that can help, like niacin, niacinamide, and niagen. They help your body make more NAD plus even as you age. All three of these are in an amazing formula called Qualia NAD plus. Check out Qualia NAD plus risk-free for up to 100 days at neurohacker.com slash Dave15 to save an extra 15%. That's neurohacker.com slash Dave15, Qualia NAD+. It's what I use. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. Now, would you agree with this, this notion that as a CEO founder, there is a pressure to appear uh, like, you can, like you can do things that, that regular people cannot? There's a pressure to appear that you can do CEO things. I don't I don't actually think that most investors are more trustful or likely to give money to a CEO who says I meditate and I do yoga and especially if you go back a little while. So I first put yoga, meditation, 
uh, and modafinil, you know, which is the limitless drug, uh, in my LinkedIn profile um, back around 1999, 2000. <laughs> and yeah, I'd go to these meetings and I didn't care because I was already successful in my tech career. Like I was a co-founder of a part of the company that held Google's first servers and I'd made six million bucks when I was 26, lost it when I was 28. But I, I just didn't care. I'm like, I'm just going to do this because I'm weird, right? What do you think and, about now? Well, so now it's it's getting more accepted. But if you looked at what the tech CEOs who were fundable in the late 90s, early aughts, uh, what, what they would do, there's always a set of behaviors that are the accepted behaviors for the fundable CEOs. And the set of behaviors changes over time. What I'm actually happy about is the type of practices that allow the very highest levels of human performance seem to include meditation, yoga, self-reflection and resetting dopamine systems um, the way you get from dopamine fasting. If you don't do those things, provably, especially the, the, the very recent work that's coming out around actually increasing the number of dopamine receptors, being able to continuously motivate yourself, like being a CEO, and I, I feel like I'm qualified to say this, it's one of the shittiest jobs there is because it's very lonely Right, because everyone's looking to you, but you can't always tell the, even the people who are closest you work with. You can't tell them everything that's going on or things you're concerned about. That's why CEOs like me spend huge amounts of money to be in others group groups with other CEOs who actually understand the bizarre world that we live in. Right, so um, there's a lot, a lot going on there uh, where we're saying, okay, with all this pressure and there's things are moving faster. It's a you know globalization, all that kind of stuff. So we're juggling a whole bunch. So. If I was a, an investor, and I am an investor in about 20-something companies, um, what you find is that the CEOs who have figured out how to continue to stay motivated and positive in this world almost universally have to be doing something that is psychedelic, breathwork, cold exposure, burning man. Otherwise, they can't hack it, and they fail, and they they go to drugs, they go to, to sex addiction, they they hit the wall, right? And I, I just don't know how to do my job if I hadn't have learned all these things, if I hadn't have, you know, fasted for a week in a cave and written a book about it. And, and it's funny because in the article, you're like, look, by 2020, intermittent fasting wasn't enough and dopamine fasting, abstaining from food and any other kind of stimulation uh, had taken off. These self-denial fads are often touted as biohacking innovations. Okay, I created the field of biohacking, right? Dude, are these fads or are these just technologies to tweak my neuroreceptors so they do what I want? Like, I mean, I'm genuinely curious. I could be self-deceiving all this time, right? Well, yeah. So there are two separate questions here, and I don't want to conflate them. What yeah. is what are the psychological and physiological effects of these practices? The other is to what extent are individuals leveraging these practices or claiming to engage in these practices mm -hmm. to promote a persona? The, the um, myth, like creating a, uh, an origin myth or something. 100% people are doing that, right? And I, I watch people kind of copy that. And look, I, I stood up and said, here's my origin myth. I'm a fat computer hacker, except it's not a myth if it's actually what happened. And yes, I, I did do the thing in Mount Kailash. I wouldn't have expected any of this crap. Um, I wasn't looking to start a coffee company. I was looking to start a computer security company, right? Like this, this stuff happened to me. So I was truthful about it. But you do see routinely, um, especially amongst the, the under 30, you know, I want to be an influencer. You got to ask yourself why you want to be an influencer other than just to make money. 
But if you're if you're doing that, it's very beneficial to say, I did all this crazy stuff, right? It's more beneficial to have actually done it, learned from it, learned from some masters, had a chance to chew on it, and then to share it in a in a uh, a value added way. But yeah, absolutely, it's marketing. And before that, it's you know, I went to the gym. Like we we have this long like you have to do hard stuff to be worthy, and that goes back to you know Greek myths, as far as I can tell. Like to to be great, you have to suffer. I don't actually believe that, but that's what humans believe. Yes, yes. I mean, so that is the point. This notion that okay, so we have two we have two questions here, which we can address separately. Mm-hmm. One is to what extent are individuals promoting claims that they suffer to cultivate a perception that they are great, that they can be great, that they have power. Oh, and as un- you just said, people lie. Yes. Yes, but I, yeah, I, I as you just said, I, people I have it. the yeah. intuition that through suffering you become great. Um, and I think the manifestations of that suffering can be manifold, but the argument is that CEOs, like humanity always, talk about the ways in which they suffer uh, to promote a perception that they are great. Now, the other question that you've brought up is, to what extent are the different technologies that we have talked about or covered promote the particular benefits that that are being touted or that are being discussed? Um, And so I think we differ here. You and of course you have thought like a lot about this. Um, I have also thought about it, although from a very different perspective. Um, and I think that's where it comes down to empirics. It comes down to like we run studies and we we look at the effects uh, and we you know run a, a certain number of them in a diverse enough context to be pretty sure about about what variables are mediating it. I think it's also quite easy when we. I'm not saying that you engage in this, but I'm saying that I and like everyone engages in this. When I have a particular expectation of a causal association that by engaging in X, you should become Y, then it's very easy to find confirmatory evidence. And oh, every all humans do that. It's yeah, it's, it's built into our operating system, and it happens automatically, whether you tell yourself you do or you don't. You just yeah. do. Yeah. Okay. Um, and so you know, I. Uh, if we look at intermittent fasting, so the review that I found that someone sent me at Frontiers in Neuroendocrinology came mm-hmm. out in April, it looked at five human studies. All of them, I believe, have been conducted since 2019. Uh, two are mixed results, three are promising. Now, were people intermittent fasting before 2019? Probably. I mean, yes, clearly. Oh, yeah. <laughs> uh, and like, is some of that intermittent fasting inspired by the intuition that you had just put forward that through suffering you become great? I would I would argue that it has, um, or I think it's at least plausible. Um, for, for longer fasting, I would buy it. Anyone who's learned how to do intermittent fasting for more than two weeks realizes that there is no deprivation. You're simply just not hungry and you have right. more energy. Right. It's actually just a net easier way of living. <laughs> <laughs> right, right, right. Okay, yeah, maybe maybe yeah. some of the other fasting regimes that, yeah. that people discuss and tout. Um, in terms of the other like biohacking innovations, again, you know, it's a, it's an empirical question, but they all do have this interesting result that they promote a perception that you are crawling away from normal humanity, that you are, you know, oh yeah, and, and I am. I, I have no interest in being normal humanity. Um, I, I would probably end up killing myself if I was stuck there because that would be boring. Right. And, but I'm not saying that as a marketing thing to say, everyone look at me. What I'm saying is 
this tech and these states are A, they're real, and B, they're beneficial, and C, they're achievable for normal people, not just for tech CEOs and people with, you know, shamanic lineage and all that kind of stuff. They're just part of the human condition. So you owe it to yourself to figure out which altered states you want to choose to be in because they're better than where you are today. Right. And so here's the tool set that I know about. And by the way, do you know about anything you can tell me? Which is why I want to talk to you because you study all sorts of cool stuff. Um, but you're right. There are people who misuse that to say, you know, I, I am, I am special. I want to be a guru. Right. And, um, the, the guru thing is, is, is a whole odd thing that I'm sure you've probably studied as part of your, you know, part of your work as an anthropologist. And I've always found it interesting. I also know gurus and I'm friends with some of them who have fucking weird powers. Like they can do stuff that humans aren't supposed to be able to do unless you believe in those, you know, superpowers in the, uh, the yoga sutra uh, thing. <laughs> and you're like, what the heck? So what I find though, is that if people become reliant on a guru, then as soon as the guru dies, the people are screwed. And if people learn to be their own personal guru, where they learn to do the stuff that they need, well then they're free. And, and that's the state that I'm looking for. And I don't mind calling guru friends and saying, you know, Hey, can you, you know, can you, uh, help out on how to do this? And maybe they'll teach me something. I, I, but that's a very practical computer science-y way of thinking about it. I think that's why people know about my work. Cause I'm just willing to share all that stuff. And I'm sure some people think I have some kind of superpowers, I, I don't think so. I think these are human powers. I, I just maybe have done a better job at mining them. And I think all of us have to do that. Otherwise, we're going to blow ourselves up as a species. Yes, yes. How do we sort it out? I mean, how do you do this as an anthropologist? Okay, you got three CEOs. One of them claims to have done all this suffering stuff because he wants to be cool and he feels like he's not enough. And two of them actually just did it because they did not have to be CEOs without it. How would you spot the charlatan? How would I spot the charlatan among the three? I, I wouldn't say being an anthropologist gives me some kind of special insight into who is a charlatan and who is not. Although, you know, we could, again, just take an empirical perspective. So you were enumerating particular psychological benefits that, that derive from different techniques. So we might say yeah. that um, through green juicing, you become, I think you said, like detached or floaty or something. I forget the yeah. precise word. I don't, know if that, I don't know if that's a benefit, but you might convince yourself it's a benefit. It feels different anyway. Yes, yes. Yeah. The, the broader point just being that there, we could make a prediction about the particular psychological benefits that would mm -hmm. stem based on like good empirical research is where I would come from. Yeah. And so then you can see like, yeah, what are these individuals claiming? So um, someone might say, yes, I engage in green juicing and it like really promotes my focus. And it's because of that, that I'm an incredible manager and I can mediate disputes and I can respond to any email in a second and stay up like, 20 hours a day. And then we can say, okay, based on the empirical research, we could have, we can make some informed speculation about like, uh, to what extent that that is legitimate or valid. That, that is possible, but you have to be doing modafinil juicing, not green juicing. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> I'm just kidding. Yeah. 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 But I, I wanted to mention that just because like, I, I think, and this is why I, I was coming back to this prediction about like, what should shamans do? I think it's very easy to say these kinds of technologies are useful. They are beneficial. And so when individuals engage in them, um, they, 
engage in them because they produce these benefits. But because something produces a benefit does not necessarily mean that it is being leveraged for the benefits that it's producing or that it exists because of the benefits that it's producing. You're, you're totally right. People are misusing the, the fact these tools exist, saying they're using the tools when they're not, or maybe they're using them, but they're overselling that it's because that's how they got their, you know, their magician's cloak and magic wand or whatever. Your point's valid. And there's something else that just came out literally yesterday on neuroscience news. And it was a study of uncertainty and pain relief. And I doubt you've seen it unless you follow the same same threads that I do. What they did is they took a group of people who had chronic ongoing pain and they said, hey, we have some music that can help with pain. And one group listened to the music the other group was told they had control over pitch and tempo in the music that they didn't actually have control of. And the group that thought they had control over the music had very statistically significant improvements in their pain reduction from the perception of control, even though they didn't really have any. Okay, That really supports what you're saying, that calling a shaman actually can have a meaningful effect on your pain because it gave you the perception of control. But it doesn't mean that the shaman didn't actually do something that helped with your pain and the perception helped. And we're working on teasing out which of those shamanic techniques are real. And the scary thing there is shaman number one may be able to do it. And shaman number two may either be a charlatan or just a shaman who does some other kind of work that didn't work for you. And I have no idea how to tell the difference between the two other than to try them both and see which one worked. Do you have any yeah. advice for people trying to make that decision? <laughs> um, well, I would say that in any society in which you have uncertainty about the extent to which individuals are charlatans, you have a discourse. So like in every society in which there are shamans, there is a constant secondary discourse about who is legitimate, who is not, you know, what are their particular abilities, to what extent are they doing this for the, the sex and the food, etc. Um, yeah, I, I also, it's interesting that you were reading that study. I, just this morning and yesterday, have been in a hole of looking at how engaging in rituals alleviates anxiety, which is oh, wow. slightly slightly different, but, you know, again, by engaging in these practices. Um, and, you know, we can ask, are individuals engaging in these rituals? You know, I want to stop the rain from coming. Uh, I engage in a ritual. Uh, it alleviates my anxiety. It may be... As a, as a result, maybe I'm actually good at doing other stuff. You know, I'm, I'm, I, I'm less anxious, so I'm more socially charismatic or confident. Does that ritual exist in the first place because individuals perhaps erroneously believe that it will stop the rain or because it produces these benefits? Again, you know, things can exist and produce benefits, but that doesn't necessarily mean that's why they, why they exist in the first place. But, you know, like you're saying, it's a tricky thing to tangle, untangle, um, yeah, do you know what I mean? Yeah, and do you know the the pigeon study with the pigeon dances to get fed? Of course, yeah, the Skinner study, superstition and pigeons. Right, I, and so for listeners, this is a, a study where uh, they would, uh, with a random timer, drop birdseed into some pigeons, and eventually the pigeons realized that if they did these exotic dances, that it would cause the randomly <laughs> generated birdseed to appear. So they would do these elaborate rituals that really didn't cause anything, but that even pigeons decided to. Since humans and pigeons share a lot of the same operating system, like the everything below our conscious mind, we're probably doing some of that in our in our life. In fact, we're almost certainly doing that. It's just, it, it's by design supposed to be impossible for us to just know that. But we can do that using science and math and things like that. 
Right, right. It's a constraint in our ability to uh, figure out signals when they are noisy. Yes, it, exactly. And where I ended up, as I said, all right, what we do in Western science, even with anthropology and all, is we're standing on the shoulders of our ancestors, right? You know, the first culture anthropologist figured out some practices that worked. You're relying on statistical methods that have been, you know, achieved over the past mostly 150 years and and things like that. And we we continuously do this. So I said, all right, from these spiritual technologies, I'm going to do the same thing. And one of your, um, uh, someone also from Harvard, uh, Daniel P. Brown, uh, is really interesting. Are you familiar with his work? I'm not, no. So he's spent about 40 years on this. And he, I don't know which department he'd be in, probably psychology, psychiatry. He's one of the foremost living experts on hypnotism, which is another altered state technology, right? Um in his spare time, he translates 13th century cave meditation books from Sanskrit uh, into English uh, and was on the show oh, last year sometime. Really fascinating interview um, talking about Sirhan Sirhan and how, uh, yes, he was in a, in a hypnotic trance when he killed RFK. <laughs> He's like, what? <laughs> so we have guys like that who I would say is, is a master of his work who are saying, I'm going to be influenced by people who deprived themselves in caves in the 13th century and carefully wrote down every step of their meditation to reach this specific thing. And when you look throughout all of these ancient literatures or ancient practices, they carefully distilled for sometimes tens or even hundreds of generations the practices that most rapidly produced a very specific state. The same things that I was learning in the monastery in Nepal, right? Or maybe similar things, right? I feel like there's a whole big map of altered states. You do this state for this, this state for this, that we used to know about that some pockets of ancient knowledge exist in and that neuroscientists are working on right now. And it has nothing to do with telling anyone that you're doing this. It has nothing to do with waving a flag that says, I have special powers. I'm a CEO. Give me, you know, $80 million in funding. But it does have something to do with how do I show up every morning, not yell at the team that I've hired? How do I not hire the narcissists uh, and sociopaths, by the way, I have a unique ability to hire those, um, by the way. Um, you know, all CEOs learn eventually, I think, um, how to have better discernment of their team, um, which I'm always working on. Um, but if there was a magic incantation I could have done and I could have spun around reverse clockwise on my head three times in a cave in order to gain that faster, I would have done it even if I had to fly to Thailand, right? Like, I, I just need the tools so that I can build a clean team uh, which I think I'm getting better at. I have a great team now. Um, if I ignored all of that stuff, that whole side of human nature, that whole side of human knowledge that's been going on for a long time, I don't think it's all just mysticism. I don't think it's just marketing. I actually think that it's necessary for us to evolve and do the things we're supposed to do. And I kind of feel like you might believe that too because you follow one lineage. I mean, one could argue uh, that you're also practicing deprivation, right? Because, well, you're a Sikh, right? You don't cut your hair and your beard, right? And, and there's spiritual significance to that. One actually I think is, is very valuable. But, you know, you're following that. Do you, from that perspective, believe that there are benefits? Or, like, what's your anthropological excuse for your own practice of something that another person might say is deprivation? Yeah, so... <laughs> That's a great question. The way that I see my own 
um, what we might call costly religious or spiritually related behavior is being a Sikh is, is really tied up with my identity. I, mm -hmm. Both my parents are Sikhs. All of my family is Sikh. Um, I have like a, a lot of pride in the cultural lineage from which I derive. There are just stories that have been passed down that I think are incredible. My grandfather was hunting with his father by horseback. Uh, they were hunting lions and his father accidentally shot himself while cleaning the gun. Um, and my grandfather took off his turban and wrapped up the wound and put him on the horse and rode back. And unfortunately, my great grandfather had passed away. Mm. Um, but that is a story that I have a lot of pride in that, you know, very explicitly features the turban. Um, so yeah, there are a couple of things. There's like coming from a cultural identity or a cultural background that I that I dig and find beautiful in many ways. I, you know, Sikhi, Sikhism has incredibly evocative and beautiful hymns that it, are kind of psychedelic in some, in some instances. It, what do you mean kind of? There's a whole psychedelic right. practice that isn't drug-based. I, I, Dharma Singh Khalsa um, is a, well, there's probably 10, 10 million of them, but there is a Dharma Singh Khalsa from, uh, I think, Northwestern, who wrote a book called Meditation is Medicine. He's a, a Westerner who uh, became... Uh, uh, sick, and he um, he went through, and and I I did his practices uh, um, straight from you know your tradition every morning for several years with all the mantras and the mudras and positions and all that, and it's yeah, it's it's mind altering. It's a technology for reaching these states, and it's one you use all the time, right? <laughs> right, right, yeah. I mean, um, yeah, and from the hymns, it it seems to yeah. Okay, we. We can just put that aside, but yeah, I think it's I think it's an incredibly evocative tradition that I am glad to be a part of. Um, I also really like having a turban. This is maybe weirdly instrumental, but I like it for a couple of reasons. One, if I see someone else with a turban, there is such a feeling of affiliation and camaraderie. Yeah, um, it's a tribal thing, right? It's a tribal thing. Yeah, I, I moved to Denmark when I was 22. Someone was like, oh, someone at our Gurdwara knows someone who knows someone who lives in Denmark, another Sikh. He picked me up from the, from the airport. I lived with them for two weeks while looking for a, um, an apartment. There's a real sense of, of camaraderie, of in-groupness, of, of mm -hmm. community. Um, and also, I mean, growing up as a kid with a turban is, growing up as a kid with a turban is tricky. It's hard. It's You're, hard. You kind of are othered in some ways. It also comes with a lot of awesome dimensions. But at this point, I kind of like being a guy with a turban. Um, you know, I, I, I'm in a way a, a bit exotic. I, it allows me to cultivate a certain exoticism that I think would be difficult to otherwise. Um, yeah, so those are, just to be super explicit, those are how I think about my... My Got it. And, and I, I'm, I'm absolutely not not criticizing you at all. I think there's a lot of venerable uh, traditions um, in Sikhism. Now, are you a Jain as well? No, no, that's a distinction. Okay. And some of my nutritional things, by the way, I think garlic and onion actually have uh, effects on your brain because I've spent six months with, with electrodes on my head developing the neuroscience protocols that I do. And I can feel a difference if I eat a bunch of garlic. Like it does something to my, I don't know, my awareness that I don't particularly like. So I think there's something to Jainism. I'm not strict on that, but there's, there's something going on in there where the nutrition affects the subtle conscious states. Um, yeah. And again, you know, like, 
<laughs> like the theme is, I don't want to dismiss the capacity for various cultural technologies to produce insight or to produce the kinds of the kinds of ends that that uh, they are sometimes justified in. I would say that I am skeptical of some of them. You know, I have some degree of uncertainty about the capacity of everything that is done to produce everything that is being claimed. And yeah. as as you seem to agree yourselves, I think like regardless of, of what's going on here, people leverage them for other ends. Uh, and I, I, I really understand the point of the article now. I, what I don't do is throw the baby out with the bathwater. I think intermittent fasting has been profoundly important and I've really been doing it for, geez, 15 years now. And I just, I can't bring it cognitively the way I need to if I eat croissants for breakfast. It, it just doesn't work. Right. And I would, I actually like croissants and I would love to have them for breakfast. <laughs> I'm just not going to do that because it's not worth it. Right. And if, to me, that's not a deprivation at all. That's, uh, you know, I, that's, uh, I would like a short term pleasure or a long term pleasure. And I'm just choosing like the, the greatest area under the curve of pleasure that I can find. Right. Um, I mean, and, actually, after yeah. I, after people have sent me these articles, uh, especially this, this new review and the stuff done in the past couple of years, I'm like, oh, dang, I should probably engage in intermittent fasting. Um, <laughs> I'm probably convert you. <laughs> yeah, I, I think I've been converted. Do you, do you want me to send you an infrared light and I'll cut up your Magic the <laughs> Gathering cards and we'll be good to go? You can never cut up my Magic the Gathering cards. <laughs> I will die before you cut up my Magic the Gathering cards. <laughs> how did I know? <laughs> <laughs> um, all right, well, how, how would someone who's listening to the show be able to know whether they're talking with uh, a CEO who's chest thumping spiritually saying that they do all these things just to be cool or to be powerful versus someone who's actually using some technologies for high performance. Well, okay. Before we think about that, why do you think that's an important question? Well, if you're going to put a million dollars behind someone, I would want to put the million dollars behind the person who's actually using technologies to perform better versus the guy who is pretending because that guy's almost provably a narcissist and narcissists destroy society. Okay, right. Okay, that makes sense. <laughs> I mean, like I said earlier, I would, I would, it requires a pretty sophisticated understanding of what these different technologies do. But one thing, <laughs> one thing is to say, um, yeah, what are you engaging in? What benefits do you think those provide? Um, I mean, as with Elizabeth Holmes, it seems like a lot of things that she claimed were actually just demonstrably false. So maybe if you can tell that that they are straight she up lying. Was, as, as far as I can tell, um, she's a narcissist, not a sociopath. And, and the difference in the, but I'm working on a, the book after the next book will be about this. Um, but uh, they're narcissists convince themselves of their false reality. So they don't know that they're doing what they do. And then sociopaths know that they're deceiving you. They just get off on it. Right. And fortunately it's only maybe five, 6% of people are sociopaths and narcissists, the, the conscious deceivers, everyone else, they're self deceivers, which allows them to become you deceivers. Right. Right. I think, uh, at Theranos, Elizabeth Holmes was almost certainly convincing herself that all this worked when her scientists would say your, your technology is bogus. It couldn't be bogus because then she would fail and she's the kind of woman who doesn't fail. Therefore it's not bogus. And that inner loop would run entirely unconsciously. And then, you know, she'd look around and 
um, I have dealt with that in in multiple companies that I run um, where you know, self deception is is rampant, and I'm looking for the technologies that allow me to find the self deceivers and eject them from the company quickly, or show them that they don't need to self-deceive anymore. And what I do when I run CEOs through my neuroscience thing is I show them their own self-deception using a lie detector so they get over it, <laughs> right? So I really believe society has to get rid of this, otherwise we will self-destruct. So I'm, I'm, I'm motivated to do that, and mostly because I'm planning to live a long time and I want to live around people who aren't in a state of self-deception. And I'll, I'll use any spiritual technology on the planet uh, to remove that from my world anyway. Yeah, yeah. I mean, it's hard. I, I I don't know a good way to distinguish them other than this kind of involved. And I don't an interviewing know, process. Well, yeah. if you meet a shaman who can just do it automatically, would you introduce me to him? <laughs> of course, of course. <laughs> uh, it's it's been fascinating to chat with you, uh, and I I appreciate uh, what you were saying in the article in Wired. Now that I I grasp it fully, which is that there are some people who are using these technologies to create a myth around themselves that maybe isn't real. And I think you and I both believe that there are some people who are successfully using some of the technologies, some of the time for benefit. We just are still in the process of figuring out what works best for who, when. Yes, yes, exactly. I, I think yeah. we very much agree on those points. Awesome. Manvir, thanks again for being on the show. Your website, Manvir, or it's Manvir, but M-A-N-V-I-R.org. Uh, and my last question for you is your written art, you're clear, I mean, you're a Fulbright scholar. You're a really smart guy, right? Um, tell me about death and various breeds of rabbits. Why did you make a book on that? Yeah, why death and rabbits? Um <laughs> I just found gods of death to be so beautiful and evocative and overflowing. Um, yeah, yeah. They are just like an explosion of an imagination and embodiment of this experience that we're constantly trying to figure out. And then I just found rabbits to be such an amusing contrast because they're like adorable and small. Yeah. It it's it, it was pretty cool. So I, I'm like, all right. Whenever I have someone on the show, I always take a look at their work. And on your website, like oh, I've got some some art. And I looked at this, and yeah, you've got you know ancient death gods interspersed with kind of cute bunnies. And as an anthropologist, I can totally see it. But it also kind of reminds me of someone who goes to Burning Man. Have you been? I've yeah, I've been a couple times. I'm actually <laughs> having trouble getting tickets right now. So. Um, yeah, I'm going to be at Machu Picchu this year instead of that. But after that, I'm going to Burning Man every year, even if they canceled, I'm going anyway. So that's my plan. <laughs> yes, yes. No, I'm actually a big fan of Burning Man. I'm, nice. Yeah, I've engaged in a number of the technologies that I talked about in the piece. I'm, you know, a curious man who himself wants to cultivate um, abilities and experience. Uh, my read on you is that you actually use a lot more of those technologies than you are admitting to yourself so far, um, but that they're working for you. Potentially, perhaps. I, I guess maybe there's all, everyone has their own level of self-deception. I, I believe we all do, right? And then over, as we age and as we gain wisdom and as we you know, cultivate relationships that allow us to see that, like, holy crap, I, I know that I was relying on that. So 
Thank you so much for taking the time uh, and just for your work. It, it's really interesting. And I also appreciate the warning there that not everyone who uh, stands up in a state, place of leadership and says, I did all this cool stuff actually did it. And maybe they're talking about it not because it worked, but because they just want to be cool. Um, there is great danger that I see in the world of biohacking. I see it in the world of, of CEOs. And we won't even talk about the world of Bitcoin. <laughs> Thanks again, my friend. Yeah, thank you. It, can I just say at the yeah. end, um, if anyone knows how I can get access to two Burning Man tickets, if they can let me know. All right, we'll put that in there. And uh, uh, I had a hard time with that as well. So uh, we will um, uh, we'll hope that that works. Yeah, thanks. Thanks Thanks for the conversation. This was oh, a lot of it. fun. Yeah. You're listening to The Human Upgrade with Dave Asprey. The Human The Human Upgrade, formerly Bulletproof Radio, was created and is hosted by Dave Asprey. The information contained in this podcast is provided for informational purposes only and is not intended for the purposes of diagnosing, treating, curing, or preventing any disease. Before using any products referenced on the podcast, consult with your healthcare provider, carefully read all labels, and heed all directions and cautions that accompany the products. Information found or received through the podcast should not be used in place of a consultation or advice from a healthcare provider. If you suspect you have a medical problem or should you have any healthcare questions, please promptly call or see your healthcare provider. This podcast, including Dave Asprey and the producers, disclaim responsibility for any possible adverse effects from the use of information contained herein. Opinions of guests are their own, and this podcast does not endorse or accept responsibility for statements made by guests. This podcast does not make any representations or warranties about guest qualifications or credibility. This podcast may contain paid endorsements and advertisements for products or services. Individuals on this podcast may have a direct or indirect financial interest in products or services referred to herein. This podcast is owned by Bulletproof Media.